very welcome back to the Locker Room Podcast from dailysportscience.com. Uh, this is number 76. We're looking at the long-term club development uh, and we're reviewing the Premier League season 2022-2023. We have the great Derek O'Reilly back with us again due to popular demand, Derek, after um, your stellar performance with the World Cup uh, review show back in, in, I guess, December at this stage. And you've got um, you've got a cool new jersey. You'll have to show us a little bit better with the, what jersey you got this time. Yeah, this is the this is the Holland one way jersey from 1988, I think, when they won the European Championship. So yeah, <laughs> it's I have nice. Van uh, Basten and Hollerson. So great, yeah. A right card and all. Lovely. Okay, great stuff. Love it. Love the color and the old. Um, what we love to do is we love to start selling like retro football jerseys in the, the daily sports sign shop or something like that and you get you get like two percent and i'll take nine, 98 percent. that might work out well yeah you keep yeah. modeling them it, it's more than getting paid for this so i'm, I'm happy <laughs> <That's true. laughs> right we keep moving <laughs> okay so we're gonna have a, a a review back on the season Obviously, you're a big Arsenal fan, and I wanted you wanted you to come back, come on a couple of months ago, and you said no, you definitely can't because Arsenal were fl- flying high, top of the table, playing unbelievable football, whatever amount of games left, and you said you don't want to jinx it by coming on and saying how well Arsenal are doing, and then they'd end up losing the league. Uh, you probably should have come on anyway, I'd say. I, I, to be honest, you know, I was as an Arsenal fan, we were surprised to be in that position. You know, at the start of the season, you would never guess that we would have been challenging for the league. Um, I think I did say to you back at the time, around that time, I think Arsenal might have been eight points ahead and, and 12 games left. That when you looked at the picture list, I, I was expecting City to come back. Um, Arsenal had tough away games, you know, Liverpool away, City away, Newcastle. Um, City's run and looked, looked a lot better, but I mean, Obviously, a lot of people are saying that Arsenal bottled the title and all that, but I think they just weren't good enough. You know, they're not at City's level yet. Um, City are just a, a, a phenomenal team. Um, Arsenal are a bit off that level just at the moment. Um, yeah. And, you know, City, to beat them in the league, are going to pretty much have to get 90 plus points, uh, which is phenomenal standard they're setting. And this Arsenal team, they're young, inexperienced, you know, maybe a little bit of bottle, you know. Because they are young, they're not used to being in, in title challenges. Um, losing, dropping points at Liverpool when they're two and up, even though a draw away to Liverpool is not a bad result. Um, to then followed up a week later with dropping points to West Ham after being two up, and then just kind of Southampton the following week again. Just the, the heads did seem to drop at the time, but like I said, I don't think they were ever going to be good enough to win it. I don't think they were going to get to 93, 94 points, which is what you kind of need to beat City. I know City only got to 89 in the end, but that's because they rested theirs in the last couple of games. Um, but, you know, it's still a fantastic season for Arsenal. You know, us Arsenal fans are still delighted. I think, you know, we're ahead of schedule. We're, we're getting there and Arteta's done a fantastic job, you have to say. Before the season starts, if somebody said you'd be going toe-to-toe with this Man City team, uh, you, you'd be top for, you know, more than three-quarters of the, the league campaign. You'd probably, you know, bite the hand off of that. And 
probably the more thing that we've seen from Arsenal, which kind of links in with our general topic of this this episode, is about that like long term club development and that strategic way of looking at the at the club. And it really seems like Arteta has he's kind of brought back like a feel good factor around the club, but also you can see now that these players really want to play with him. And, and maybe one of the biggest things as well is that they now will go into the, the transfer market and some of the top, top players will be now willing to come to Arsenal. You know, whereas before that probably wasn't, it wasn't the case in the last few years. They've got a, like I was at the, the Women's Champions League semi-final uh, about a month ago or so. The stadium is amazing. Obviously, the training ground is great. They seem like they've got kind of structure, you know, the team behind the team set up really well. Um, and they look like they're going to be challenging, you'd hope, for for years to come or in the coming years. Yeah, yeah, you'd hope so anyway. Um, but ha- having said that, like, they, in one way, the easiest thing to do is increase the levels from a low base, which they've done. And then the hardest step to take is the next one, to go to, to being champions or competing for the, the championship every year, competing for Champions League every year. You know, that's the difficult step. Um, I think they're on the right path. Like you said, the top players, they will be in for in this summer. You mean Declan Rice has been linked. I say though, from Brighton has been linked. Um, so they should be in the market for those type of players. And, you know, it's, it's probably a matter of adding quality rather than quantity this year. Um, I think that one of the ways they fell apart in the second half of the season really was they were playing the first 11 every week and it seemed like Arteta didn't really trust the reserves too much. Um, when you brought in the likes of Tierney, who's, who's a very good fullback, but when he comes in from Zinchenko, you know, the quality isn't there because Tierney's an out-and-out fullback. Zinchenko comes into midfield, links the play, you know, so your whole game plan changes a bit. That's just one example. I think, you know, you had to use Holding as a centre-half for a while who's not up to that level either when Saliba got injured. Uh, and Ketty had done a decent job for Jesus, but long term, he's not a great second option to Jesus either. So I think how they're going to get to the next level is adding those quality players and having two really good players for every position. That's what City have. That's what Real Madrid have had for years. You know, that's what the great teams always do. They'll have two players for every position. And Arsenal just don't have that at the moment. Um, but, you know, it's it's they're moving in the right track. Um, I think... You know, when we're looking back at the season and how, like you're saying, how Arsenal develop and, and how they go forward, it's, I was looking at it and, and it's pretty much very similar to United with Ten Hag as well. Like I was looking at when Ten Hag got the job, it was a case of he's coming into a club where standards have dropped. They're not at the same level they were years ago, pretty much the same as Arteta when he took over Arsenal. You know, there is that fact that the two of them had these great managers in the past that were there as a club for ages. The two managers pretty much ran the clubs and probably had full say on everything that went on. So when those managers left, there was nearly a leadership, lack of leadership there. Um, the, the people left behind on the board probably didn't have the football knowledge because um, they let Wenger and Ferguson just dictate. Um, yeah. And the clubs struggled for a few years. Uh, managers came in, like Solskjaer for United, uh, Emery for Arsenal. They weren't able to impose authority. The players were almost calling the shots. Um, agents were having too big a say as well. So basically, Ken Hag nearly had the same job as Arteta last year, you know, coming into a club, having to change the culture, change the mindset, uh, create a winning mentality, deal with big egos who were probably getting a bit too big for their boots. Um, 
and you know it's, it's it wasn't a quick fix it's, you know when you have to change so much it's it's not a quick fix at all um Arteta and Ten Hag probably would have loved to come in and just focus purely on football and coaching but there were so many aspects that had to, to work on and to be fair Ten Hag's done well with United this year he's, he's probably getting them up to speed a bit quicker than Arteta um did with Arsenal but then Arteta was probably his first job in management he was he was a coach before that and you know he was probably learning as he went along whereas Ten Hag had been with Ajax and had managed teams so he probably knew how to deal with situations a bit better um yeah. funnily enough when you compare the two as well Man United won a trophy in their first year winning the Carabao Cup Arteta won a trophy in the first year so that gave the managers too a bit of leeway um when they're dealing with these big name players, if they have a trophy behind them and show that they can win, it gives them that bit of authority as well and helps them deal with those big players that they need to get rid of. So, yeah. you know, when you talk about development, I think the first thing for those teams was to ship out the lads who are bad eggs, basically bad characters, start building the team from there, create that winning culture, winning mentality. And I think they've said Arsenal and Man United are very similar and probably both on the right track now. Um, but yeah. again, Competing with City is, is the hardest thing. Yeah, it's amazing actually how how similar they are in some ways when you think about it because Arteta and Ten Hag, they're both very modern, continental, like head coach type roles. And they came into clubs, both of them, where they were used to having like a manager, you know, Wenger and Ferguson, where they ran things from top to bottom. And I think sometimes a, a, lot, of, a lot of people don't even realise the difference between a kind of a head coach role and a manager role, whereby now you feel like Arsenal have a structure there with Edu and they've, you know, their director of football and their director of, you know, uh, uh, football operations, obviously, and the commercial side of stuff and the recruitment. And in ways, it's a very different type of setup. And as you say, like I remember earlier in the season, I was critical of Ten Hag how he dealt with Ronaldo at the beginning, because I thought, you know, you have to be able to manage these top level players. And that's what's involved in these super clubs, managing the egos and everything like that. But like in hindsight, he managed that situation so well, because it's like, you know, the thing of giving him a little bit of rope, you know, and they kind of nearly hang themselves rather than you having to do the job for you. And I mean, Arteta had that as well you know, <laughs> explicitly yeah. in a, in with a documentary team in there, you could see everything that uh, went on with Abamwang and everything. Um, but obviously the, the power that that gave each manager then amongst the team was huge and, and it kind of set them on the right track. And even how like you could have a look at Rashford and Saka, young, you know, good English forward players, you probably have to say Saka is probably a better player than Rashford at this stage, perhaps. Um, but it is really interesting to see how similar they are. I suppose with Man United, they have greater financial clout and, you know, they, they have gone out and bought some of the best players in the world, whereas Arsenal still have been at the stage where they've had to kind of buy them younger and develop them more. Yeah, but it, I mean... Fair Arsenal's transfers over the last few years have, have worked out very well. You know, a lot of people thought they overspent on Ramsdale, Ben White, um, some other players like this, like Partey was 50 million, but they've all pretty much worked out and they've all been successes. Um, and just, just going back to what you're saying with dealing with the Eagles, like I said, 
Arteta had with Aubameyang and Ozil as well. And the important thing for Ten Hag with that Ronaldo situation was that he won a trophy soon afterwards and mm. then went on to get third place. So, you know, if, if if you ship out Ronaldo, get rid of him and you achieve nothing, then it looks terrible. But when you win a trophy and you get third place, all of a sudden people go, yeah, this manager knows what he's doing. He's right. Yeah. Let's follow him. And it's it's convincing players as well as fans, you know, that, that you're doing things that are right for the club. Um, and like I said, Arteta pretty much had the same things to do. Got rid of Bozo when a lot of the fans weren't too happy about it either. Then got rid of Aubameyang after that. And I think now fans seen that they weren't great characters. You know, they weren't good to have around the dressing room. You know, they were probably disruptive force to a certain extent, uh, just like Ronaldo was. So it takes a big manager to deal with that. Um, and especially novice managers, even though Ten Hag did have Ajax, like he was new to the English game. This was his first big club. And fair play to him the way he handled it and, you know, and got the success afterwards. Yeah. Last thing on Arsenal and, and Man United, the only thing you could say with Arsenal on an, in a negative sense is that will they have as good an opportunity as this over the next couple of years where, you know, and we've had discussions about this kind of offline about will Tottenham be as poor? Probably. <laughs> you know, will che- Chelsea, <laughs> Chelsea will surely do better next year. Liverpool may come back. Um and, and also just linking in with that point, United seem to be like United are a bit of a juggernaut. You know, it's like when when um, all these companies innovate and come up with the MP3 player, Apple stay out of the arena and all of a sudden they enter in with all the financial clout and the design and, uh, you know, the history and everything. And they just blow everybody out of the water. Now, I'm not saying Man United are going to do that, but they're, you feel like they're a club that are in a, pretty good situation now for the years to come the challenge will be for Arsenal of like first of all matching what they did this year and obviously then going one step further which which is obviously going to be difficult yeah yeah no I'd agree with what you say about Man United they're, they're, if, if they get things right behind the scenes if they get the structures right the manager right they'll never be too far away from, from the top trophies alright um, and with the financial clout they have as well um, for Arsenal yeah, the thing that would give me hope is that the age profile of the team, you know, they're still developing. So you say, will they ever have a better chance? Well, this this is still a very young team. Like if, if they keep progressing the way they are and get in, like we said, the, the big signings, uh, particularly in midfield, I think, you know, with Rice and Faisado linked, um, there's no reason they shouldn't be competing again uh, in the next couple of years. Like Saka still has to reach his peak, Martinelli, um, even Smith Rowe, you'd hope, will get back to a decent standard again over the next year or two. Uh, Saliba looks like a fantastic young defender. Um, so there is there is a spine of a great team there that are still developed, still to hit their peak. So, you know, that gives me hope that they will be there back in the title race again. And and also, I mean, years ago, we used to say you have to lose one to win one when you're going for a title or, or an All-Ireland or whatever, like, you know, when the big trophies. Yeah. And the experience of being in a title race should stand to them. If, if they get back in that situation again, they'll probably handle things a little bit better. So yeah. hopefully, hopefully they will be back again and, and you know get over the line the next time. Yeah. It's interesting. Just moving on to Manchester City then. <clears throat> um, I mean, a few things about Man City. But when we talk about uh, the strength and depth of the squad, you know, that Arsenal probably lacked at times. Like if you think back, actually, it's quite a long season. Because if you think back at times... Earlier in the year, Kevin De Bruyne 
like wasn't being played a lot of the times and he, he wasn't having his best season at all. And there was even talk like, has he fallen out with Pep or fallen out of favour or standards dropped? Now, obviously, he completely turned that around to the point where, you know, he's dominating against Real Madrid in a Champions League semi-final and, and everything like that. But the point being that like the, the depth of the squad for Man City, and it's not even a case of being able to play a whole second 11, you know, in your next game. It's just dripping in and out those players, you know, and I know myself even just from being involved in football, like when you've two games per week and you're traveling, you know, for them for Champions League and stuff like that, it's so important. And and also like they used to say about Alex Ferguson, that he was a genius at looking four games in it, like Ryan Giggs said in, in an interview that looking four games in advance and thinking, okay, who I need to rotate, who I need to keep fresh, who's on form, who needs a break. It's it's an art from the coach or the manager, but also having the financial clout and the depth of squad is is critical, especially at you know the business end of of the campaign. I think. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, City have had that for years. They've had, like I said earlier, two two players for every position. I mean, you look at the running, and Mares and Phil Foden were pretty much reserves for them, like, yeah. and they'd walk into any other team in, in the league. Uh, Alvarez as well, you know, what a sub to have us, uh, you know, for Haaland. Um, the De Bruyne situation earlier in the season, I think City didn't seem right earlier in the season, though. Like, yeah. as well as, you know, they finished the season in the first half, there's a lot of people saying that they weren't the same city of years before. Um, like last summer, they got rid of Jesus, Zinchenko, Sterling to rivals. And if anything, their squad really looked weaker. Even though they had Haaland in, they didn't have much else in it and they got rid of a, a few players. So, um, you know, when they were struggling, well, I wouldn't say struggling, but they were dropping points earlier in the season. It, it looked like, you know, maybe they're on the decline and all of a sudden, I think it was back in February, what, yeah. Um, had a bit of a rant about the players saying they weren't as hungry as previous seasons. And he'd getting the kick up the backside they needed, I think. And after that, I think they went on their usual winning streak of was it, 14, 15 games that they seem to do every season. And as well, I, I think probably with the World Cup, I'm wondering how much the conditioning was changed this year with players. Like I think City seemed to be the strongest team in the second half of the season. And yeah. I know, you know, Pep has spoke about conditioning of players before, like they in the previous seasons, City tend to have a, a drop in November and maybe come good then from February onwards. Um, and I think maybe the conditioning of the team might have been a bit different this year, altered for the World Cup. And, you know, when they weren't looking as strong back in the earlier part of the year, you know, it was only a matter of time probably before they were going to come good. Uh, and, and De Bruyne had been a prime example of that. Like, he, he looked a different player earlier in the year, you know, maybe the, the Belgians' poor performance in the World Cup might have affected them as well. But... In the last few months, he's been back to his sensational best. So. Yeah, and, and I suppose the same thing happened with Haaland in some ways, whereby he was banging goals in all around him. But yet there was a genuine question of, is he a problem for Man City? You know, whereby he had X number of touches of the ball, which is just alien to Guardiola, you know, way, way less than all the other players, including the goalkeeper. And he did seem to tweak his system slightly, you know, back in February to kind of bring out the best in in Haaland and De Bruyne. You know, De Bruyne kind of pushed further up, I think, really. Um, but is like, is this the culmination now of the kind of Abu Dhabi 
project in Man City, whereby like if you think of a, a, a state-run club basically set up a perfect template, a perfect structure with one man in mind of Guardiola. And obviously he came in and had success, you know, straight, well, nearly straight away. But it just feels like it's the perfect culmination now of what of this project. And unless something drastic changes, whereby either Guardiola decides to just up and leave and for a new challenge or walk away from football or you know, <laughs> financial fair play comes into reckoning or, you know, uh, some of the charges that have been brought against City. It's hard to see stuff changing now of them being the most dominant club, not only in England, but across Europe. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, they're pretty much being set up to win the Champions League and that's been their main goal, I'd mm-hmm. imagine, for the last few years. So, like you say, if, if they've clinch the Champions League and get the treble, then that is the culmination of, of the project. Um, you know, it, it's it's hard to talk about with the charges. You know, if, if yeah. they're found guilty of those charges, like they should really be relegated. Like teams have been relegated for for less than this. Um, and it's 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 115 charges. Like it's not as if they broke one or two rules. Like it's it's 115 cases. And you know, if, if it is found guilty, then you know you have to, you have to say that they're going to face. It should face the toughest punishment possible. Yeah. I mean, it's it, it's happened in Italy with Juventus, who yeah, you know yeah. got relegated. They've got ten points deduction. In for all the corruption in Italy, they're not afraid to prosecute it. Maybe maybe they're used to use dealing with the mafiosa or something like that a bit yeah, more yeah. there. But I suppose the worry for the Premier League is that it's become and Miguel Delaney often speaks about this in the Independent. Uh, it, it's become the European Super League, the Premier League. Yeah. And like we were chatting earlier about just the level of managers that are in the Premier League now, even the mid-table, lower uh, part of the league as well. It's, it's like, it's fantastic. But it's all based off TV money from around the world. And uh, like when I was living in India, they couldn't get enough of it. They just loved the Premier League. But it was based off the competitiveness whereby, you know, the, the likes of previously a Wigan, a West Brom could take points off Man United back in the early noughties or nowadays like Wolves can p- possibly beat Arsenal or, you know, Chelsea, whatever it is. But if we're entering into a phase where Man City are pretty much unbeatable, that's going to be a worry for the product of the Premier, Premier League. You know, and and ultimately, money money kind of talks with the Premier League and not not much else. Yeah, and and just going back to what you're saying about money, I think we were talking before as well, like how the likes of Bournemouth can now outbid AC yeah. Milan and Inter Milan for players. Which you know, it, it's sad as well that one league can dominate so much. Like you know, you have to say AC Milan want to get a player for twenty million, and Bournemouth can come in with a bit of twenty five and get that player. You know, it's. When you, if you had a thought of that 10 years ago, you know, just thought it was crazy, but that's that's the way the Premier League has gone. Um, and I, I guess the hope that for City not to dominate the league is, is with those puppy underdogs of Newcastle and other state run projects who are going to spend billions and billions to try beat City. Like, if that's if that's the hope we have that, that City don't dominate, is for someone else to come in the exact same and maybe yeah. share the glory with them. I think, yeah, it's quite sad that the league will get to that. Um, but, yeah. you know, financial fair pay has to be stricter. You know, you, 
you can't just have these teams expending whatever they want on us and, and dominating. Um, yeah, and, true. And like you said, it's 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 pretty much European Super League now. Like it's it's I think seen it, something there that the twenty five richest clubs in Europe, twenty of them are Premier League clubs. So you know it's it's getting one sided. Um, That's insane. But, you know, then things can change quickly. You know, if if City are found guilty and, and face punishments, if Guardiola leaves, um, like we, we've seen with City, or sorry, with Chelsea, that spending money doesn't guarantee a success. You know, Chelsea spent six hundred million or whatever over the last year and looking at to mess. So, you know, City have the right manager to take advantage of their riches. You know, he Guardiola is probably the best man to have there. If he leaves, City probably won't be as strong. Um. You know, Guardiola improves nearly every player he gets in. Um, his tactics are just superb. Like he's he's had such an influence on the modern game of football. Yeah. Um, you know, inverting fullbacks, playing out from the back, keepers having to be good with their feet, all stuff like that. Like Guardiola, not saying he invented these tactics, but he's showed that you can win with them, and now other managers are copying them. So, like they probably have the best manager in the world, and maybe when he leaves, the rest of the folks have some hope. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, very good. Um, so you've been around a long time. <laughs> what? Any, any quick thoughts about, like, I know the season hasn't finished. So if City don't win the FA Cup, don't win Champions League, they're Premier League winners and that's it. You know, impressive team. But, but if they were to go on and win the treble, and it's very difficult to compare, obviously, across generations and teams and everything like that but like when you have the Man United team of 99 let's say I know there were other Man United teams as well but that's the one that kind of jumps out now you'll probably say Arsenal Invincibles <laughs> team as well <laughs> there you go there's a bar there's a bar in the Emirates now that's uh, I can't remember do they I think it, is it called the Invincibles or some other play around that's oh no the number of games they remained unbeaten I think or something like that yeah Yeah, bar 49 or something like that Um, but yeah I mean interested just to hear your thoughts on it and this is not a city team that's loved you know for some reason I'm not sure is it that they just lack a bit of warmth or personality or maybe maybe it's purely down the Abu Dhabi, you know, state-run club and stuff like that. I'm, I'm not sure because obviously there's some like fantastic players and very likable players. Like, you know, Al, uh, Argentinian striker Al, 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 Alvarez. Yeah. Alvarez, sorry. Like in, in in the World Cup, I loved him as a player. You know, now I still like him with Man City, but it's slightly different. But yeah, what what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, yeah, you're right. They haven't they haven't got the love and probably that their football deserves and that. Um, you know, but they're, they're just a winning machine. Like they they come along, they trounce teams four or five nil. Um, most weeks, you know, when you look back at the United treble team, um, they, I think they won the league with seventy nine points that year. Wow. And that that was common enough. That wasn't necessarily a, a, you know anything un, unusual to win it with that much. I think most clubs would have won it around the seventy nine eighty one mark. Um. So when you look back at those teams, you know, they were getting, they weren't winning every week necessarily. There was lots of draws in there. They were losing five or six games a season. Um, but City, it's, it's nearly that their dominance is just dull. Like they're just coming, they're beating teams three or four nil. No one really has a chance. Some clubs have even, there was our teams against them. They're wrestling players for more important games because they know they're going to be beaten, you know, and it's, 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 Bad for the bad for the products you say the Premier League and um, that a club can be so dominant. 
they're getting to 94, 95 points pretty much every season when, when they're pushed. Um, Liverpool, I think, got to 90, was it 98 points a couple of years ago and still yeah. didn't win the league? Um, yeah. So it's, it just raised it to phenomenal levels and no one can really compete with them for too long. Liverpool, you know, had a couple of seasons of doing it. I think just the, the mental, you know, demands of that, the physical demands, Liverpool yeah. have fallen away a little bit and have to rebuild where City can just go out and spend and, and you know, develop players the way they do. It's yeah, it, it's it's his part of life, and especially as you say, given the the Abu Dhabi project and how all those accusations of the you know the 115 charges against him. They've also had fines from UEFA already, so this 115 charges is on top of other things that they have been found guilty of. So I think it's all those things. The fact that people think they can just do what they like, and you know the rules don't apply to them. I think that's why they're not loved, um, even though. Yeah. Have to say that the football is fantastic, you know, and, and you love watching Haaland and De Bruyne and like I, I like Maris and Foden as well, like really yeah. all fantastic players, but I don't think they'll ever get the love that probably the football deserves. Yeah, and, and even like if you think of Guardiola's Barcelona team, which was like loved worldwide by people from all different sports, it, it, it just not that feeling with this team. So it's interesting because. Like on the one hand, we can say that with City and the dominance, but on the other hand, it was one of the best Premier League seasons I can remember, just in terms of like drama from top to bottom. And like we spoke, luckily spoke about what we thought was number one, the best World Cup final, and number two, the best World Cup, you know. So we're quite lucky this season. Um, but I don't know, like, is it a mixture of the likes of, I'm looking at the table, like Newcastle in fourth, Liverpool in fifth, Brighton in sixth, Villa in seventh, before we get to kind of Tottenham and some of the others. But like Villa had an amazing season under uh, Emery. Uh, Brighton under De Zebri, you know, was incredible after, under Graham Potter, they were brilliant as well. Um, okay, Liverpool, not a particularly good season, but, you know, the strength of the structure and, Plop's personality and they seem to kind of have tweaked things didn't they in the spring got things right and just ran out of road basically um, Newcastle you know another coming super club able to spend lots of money but like on the other hand if someone is to ask me about who are all the amazing Newcastle players like sure they have they have some but it's it's kind of it shows what a good job Eddie Howe actually has done there to kind of stitch all those players together under a lot of pressure with new owners, lots of expectation, close to being relegated. Was it last season? Yeah, yeah I think. Like, yeah, it was. Yeah, wasn't it? Got the job, yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, like, in way, and obviously the drama of the relegation, which we'll touch on afterwards, but like the quality of the product actually having, you know, mentioned about City has been great behind that. Like, behind that kind of top six clubs and even Chelsea and Tottenham are further down from this season. But like those common clubs of Brighton and Villa, they seem to be really well-run clubs with good structures, good directors of football, but also then top-class managers or head coaches who have come in and done a really good job as well. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think I've said it to you before that like, as I say, I'm around a long time now, but uh, I think football at the moment is is in the, probably as, as good a place as I've ever seen it. I, and what I mean by that is that all the top clubs, and you're talking Premier League clubs, 
they're all trying to play the right way. They all want to play out in the back, play the ball on the ground, you know, pass through the lines. It's not a case of, you know, maybe like 10 years in the Premier League, half the clubs were just going out to try to stop the opposition. That's all they were interested in. It was all about two banks of four, trying to win free kicks to get goals. You know, set pieces are really important. I think now the emphasis has changed. Um, like every club, they're getting keepers, has to be good with their feet. Defenders have to be good with their feet. Um, the tactical side of the game has made the, the product so good. Um, it's it's even, you know, the, when I talk about tactics, like back in the 30s, you would have had a, a 2 3 5 formation and would have laughed about how, how unusual that was and the naivety of it. And inverted it's, it's, inverted Christmas tree. Yeah. And nowadays, all the top clubs use that when they're in possession. Like you'll have your two centre backs, you'll have your full backs tucked into midfield with the hole in midfielder and the others are all in, up front so like you know it's very attacking uh teams are the skill levels are probably increased hugely as well you know all defenders have to be able to play football now you have fullbacks who are you know nearly like playmakers on a lot of teams um you have you have strikers who run all day close down press so that the, the pace of the game is exceptional um so you know there's a lot of uh, tactical innovations but i would say that you know i, I alluded to that not saying he came up with it, yeah. but he brought into the game and showed that you can play this way and win at the same time. And yeah. it's it's just made football so good to watch, I think. Anyway, it's you know, you don't have the, the six foot five target man anymore that you're hoofing balls up to and, and hoping to get knock-ons. It's it's everybody has to be so good on the ball. Yeah. And you know, it's it's when you look at say high risk, high reward, in, in soccer, the mentality has been if something is high risk, high reward, you just get better at that skill mm-hmm. and take out the risk. Like the keepers playing out from the back. Like most, the fans are shouting, just get rid of it, just get rid of it. But the keepers will keep passing, they're getting better at the scale. Whereas, you know, we won't talk too much about Gaelic football this evening, but <laughs> if you look at the Gaelic it's football true. product, there's no risk. You know, anything that's risky, you're told not to do. You're told that, you know, don't even try it. And yeah. in soccer, it's if it's a risk and it's high reward, work on the skills to make it better. And, that, and that's making the game better, yeah. Yeah, I, I, listen, it, it, it's, it's a whole other topic for a podcast but I mean I have serious concerns and worries for the for Gaelic football going forward just about the product and I think people sometimes don't see that or miss that point because they're they're like so obsessed about their team and how their team is doing and winning and losing etc but I suppose maybe when you're outside the loop a little bit you know you, you can oversee things and see that the product of Gaelic football is not in the best situation, I think, bar your top, top, you know, division one teams. Um, and a lot of it, like you say correctly, is down to that where there is no risk at all. And like, if you think of it, the year that uh, Guardiola came in to English football, he came third in the first year. He really struggled before Christmas. And everyone said, you know, see, you can't play that way in England. It's not possible to do that in the Premier League. And at the end of the season, he uh, I remember watching an interview with him where he he just he said, we, we, we're going to double down. We're going to become better at this. We're going to practice it more, change the goalkeeper, obviously, which was a massive thing. And, you know, brought in specific players for specific, you know, uh, purposes and reasons and everything like that. And like an interesting one, it, it may have been you who said it. I can't remember, but somebody did about none of these new young managers talk about Jose Mourinho as their inspiration or their Mourinho's way of playing football, even though, you know, we've great respect for Mourinho as well. 
what he's achieved and there are other ways of playing football and other ways of winning games. But like all of them, Graham Potter, the Zebri, you know, all of them, they all reference Guardiola and they, they, he's kind of a hero to him in some ways. So he, he has had that impact on the game. And it's, it's I, I just, I think it's great that in the English league now we have the likes of the Zebri coming through and I think they're going to have a big impact on the on the league in the coming seasons. Yeah, and and and, and go back to what you're saying about Guardiola. I remember that first season when he dropped Joe Hart early mm. on because he said he wasn't good with his feet and he was ridiculed for it. And like I said, the next season he gets Ederson in, and Ederson is as good as any teacher in the Premier League as regards yeah. passing. And you know, and that changed the game. And then Guardiola went from being ridiculed to every other manager wanting to wanting to do it. Um, you know, I think uh, you were mentioned the Zerbi there. I think uh, Brighton played Manchester United a couple of weeks ago and they interviewed Lewis Dunk after the game. And a bit of an unusual interview with him because normally they, they don't do this, but they were showing Lew, uh, Lewis Dunk um, tips of Brighton being in possession at the back. And he was talking through about how the players need to be in a certain position when the ball is in this area of the field. You know, he was saying, I should have been dropping five yards further back there. And then Pascal Gross comes in 10 metres. And it, it just goes to show the level of coaching that it is. Like, if, if yeah. the ball blew five yards, all of a sudden players have to be in this, you know, completely different positions, you know, uh, showing for the ball, moving away from the ball, creating space for others to come into. Um, yeah. and, and this Herbie has just been a, a brilliant, uh, brilliant addition for Brighton. Um, yeah. Too sure too many people had heard of him. I know Graham Sunas was very scathing of it when he was appointed. Uh, he, he said, why wouldn't English managers be given a chance and, you know, you get someone known in. Uh, but, you know, he, he's been amazing and yeah. Brighton had just been so good to watch this year. Um, yeah. You know, they play without fear. They, they pissed up, you know, Man City, they went you know, man to man with Man City. You know, I think, I think I read the other day that Arsenal's lowest possession or lowest number of passes uh, in the games this season were against Brighton because Brighton just dominated the ball. Yeah, um, incredible. And, Pretty sure it would have been the same for Man City that they probably Brighton would have been the best competitors in that regard. Yeah. Um, you know, they obviously their, their scouting network has, has been well documented. You know, they're getting in these gems from South America, and luckily for us, they got one in from Ireland as well, and Evan Ferguson. Yeah. Um, and they develop the players, and you know, they just they just do everything right. There's just such a well-run club. Um, yeah. Yeah. Our firm is now to keep that to maintain it. This early is going to be on. You know the wish list for a lot of clubs when the next top job becomes available. Other clubs are going to see the success Brighton have had from the scouting network, and they're going to, you know, go into that South American market as well. And all of a sudden, Brighton might have start having competition for some of the players that kind of got free run at before. But yeah. their model is excellent. You know, they bring in Caicedo and see so lads like that. They're able to give them game time, which they wouldn't get at top clubs. You know, if they, if they went. The Man United Arsenal at a young age that probably wouldn't get the same amount of games. Um, so Brighton are able to get them exposure and you know increase their value and then put the club in a great position. I, I, I think every club should be looking at them and see that's how, that's how you go forward. Yeah, I think you're right in that the worry for them <clears throat> is just continually to innovate and replace players and replace staff because even like the sporting director Dan. Dan Ashford, like he's now already after being headhunted by Newcastle. And I, as far as I'm, I don't know the individuals, but there are 
heads of recruitment and people involved in that side who, who have been taken by yeah. other bigger clubs, let's say. Um, so that's going to be a slightly a slight worry for them. But my favourite thing about Brighton, how they play, is from the goal kick, in control possession, they seek to... Uh, set up like a, a counter-attacking situation. So like their little passes, little passes, you know, like playing a bit of cat and mouse, wanting the opposition to pounce and all of a sudden they're down the pitch, you know, on the counter-attack. And it, again, it's another tactical innovation that's just brilliant to watch. Uh, any word as an Arsenal man about um, Emre, Une Emre? And I mean, I suppose by the end of it, if for some people, he was ridiculed as Arsenal manager, but like his record with Sevilla and um, in the like he has what is it three Europa League yeah, titles? Four, actually, yeah. four, four. He has one with Villarreal. Yeah, yeah. So even more impressive, like two different clubs, and just his like his rec. He's a very very highly respected coach and manager in Spain and across Europe, but for some reason in Arsenal didn't quite work out but now he's doing a really good job with with uh, Aston Villa yeah I, I think at Arsenal he was probably just unlucky with the timing of things um, he'd come from PSG where you know I think he lost confidence a bit he was dealing with yeah. big egos there yeah. you know they lost the that famous game to Barcelona where they were 4-0 up and lost the second like 6-1 and he was kind of ridiculed in France after that I think the big egos turned on him um, I, I think his confidence was low enough he tried to change things at Arsenal. And like we said earlier, he came into a situation where there was no real leadership at the club. He was dealing with these big egos. Um, he probably didn't have the board backing him enough either. And the likes of Aubameyang, Ozil, you know, they called the shots at the club at the time. And he, he probably wasn't a strong enough character at Arsenal to maybe get to success and turn the same ground. Um, football wasn't fantastic. You know, he... He was, I think, in his first season, he went on a 20 game unbeaten run. And I remember saying at the time it was probably the worst 20 game run I've ever seen because the football was really poor and they were just somehow winning games 1 0, 2 1. Um, but it that wasn't all down to him. I think the, the quality of player wasn't great either. The, the character of the players wasn't great. You know, some of them would perform some weeks and go missing the next week um, and didn't seem to care too much either way. But I think Arsenal was probably, you know, just. A bad job at a bad time for him, um, yeah. coming off the back of PSG as well. I think Villarreal and Aston Villa is pretty similar, where he doesn't have to deal with these big egos. I think the players respect him. Um, they realise he's a good coach, and you know, I was when I was thinking about talking about the managers here. You say how you judge a manager is how much they get out of the resources that they have available and the players they have available, and. Emery's done that brilliant at Villa, done it really well at Villarreal. So obviously a, a top class coach. Um fortunately it didn't work out at Arsenal, but it's good to see that he is doing well again. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, interesting. Um here's one for you. <laughs> what I was just thinking about, it's obviously very obvious, so you know all this, of course. But at the beginning of the season, Conte was in charge of Tottenham, Tuchel was in charge with Chelsea, and Gerard was in charge with Villa. And for me, anyway, for some reason, that feels like a long, long time ago or something. It just doesn't, it doesn't, I don't remember this as the same season in some ways. And I suppose those kind of mid-tier teams like your, you know, your Tottenham and, and uh, Chelsea and some of them, forgetting about Villa because the change in manager there was like chalk and cheese. And, you know, it, it seemed like, 
Gerard had kind of just lost well lost everything really lost confidence of the players and you know our own for a while McBeal obviously had a big impact there on the coaching side with Villa and once he left to take over QPR you know you you, you hear reports about just training sessions weren't as enjoyable and, and, and stuff like that so that was obviously a really good change but like the likes of those big clubs there like Chelsea and Tottenham and them are they a case of getting the manager appointment wrong and as long as they get in the right person like potentially Pochettino with Chelsea is it a case that they can turn the, the ship around and, and kind of navigate into, into clear waters I think with Tottenham it's Tottenham are probably a bit different to most of the other clubs but most of the other clubs are looking at uh, long term projects you know building for the future I think Tottenham have always been the last few years have always been more short term Mm. Uh, the managers they've gotten in in uh, Nuno, uh, Mourinho and Conte have all been for the short term. It's all to win straight away. Um, it, they're not the type of managers who are going to have a project who are going to, you know, a three-year plan or that. Mourinho and Conte in particular, it's, it's about winning straight away. Um, and for Tottenham, you know, I can completely understand why they did that. You know, to have Harry Kane and Son in at their peak and... You know, it's it's the perfect time for Tottenham to to try win trophies. Is when you have these guys at their peak. So I think it probably was the right idea to go short term uh, with those managers. The problem with I think with short term managers like that who are only brought in to win straight away, they don't necessarily play good football because you know they're not going to spend time working on the stuff that other managers work on. It's about getting the tie, keeping it tight, and trying to nick one on the break. Or you know, with Tottenham, it was basically nine men defend and have Kane and Son try to win you the match so the football is quite boring and if you're not winning then the fans turn on the managers because they say right you're not winning and it's boring so what you know what's the point of this so I think while Tottenham probably were right to go with those managers for the short term and try win while Kane and Son were at their peak I think now they probably have to take a step back and go right that hasn't worked I just I have just more of an identity you know what Kind of club did they want to be? Did they want to be? I, I look back at, at Tottenham when we were younger. They had like say Glenn Hoddle, Chris Waddle, Gascoigne. They were entertainers. They were you know yeah. they were seen as the club that played lovely football and were you know everybody <coughs> wanted to watch them as a neutral. And um, obviously if an Arsenal fan, I, I would watch a neutral. But uh, <laughs> but I think they need to get back. Like, I think they need to get you know they try the the three negative managers who played their football. I think for Spurs it's time to try something different. Um, who knows if Kane will stay. Personally, I, I think he should, you know, I, th- I think he'd become a club legend there uh, if he stays and breaks record, all kinds of records with them. I think if he goes somewhere else, you know, if he wins a Carabao Cup or an FA Cup with another club, will it mean much to him? You know, it, Spurs is his club, so, you know, he'd be an all-time Spurs legend if he stays there. So, yeah, I think Spurs build a team around him of young players, exciting players, gets in a, a manager who plays football. Even if they're not winning, I think the fans will like it. And I think they'll enjoy it far more than they have the last few years. They'll get behind it. And as you know yourself, in a club, it's about creating that kind of feel-good factor. And, you know, if you have that in a club, anything is possible. You know, you can win a few trophies. Um, Going on to Chelsea. Just on Tottenham as well. I mean... Like, and you mentioned this before, just in chatting, that it's actually... brilliant opportunity for a young manager to come in there isn't it because like I'm 10 minutes away from the stadium it's an amazing stadium what they have 
they've I'm ten minutes the other direction. There's the training ground, beautiful training ground. They've all like actually the best facilities, bar maybe Man City in the country. I would say in terms of training ground, um, they've been stars of uh, starved of success. Uh, obviously, you know they've had a period now, as you say, with the last three managers where there's really been really poor football. Like it's ripe for a young progressive manager to step in there and kind of really go on a journey together over the coming years. Yeah, I completely agree with that. It's, it's you know, a new manager can go in there and say, look, you've tried the short term, it hasn't worked. Give me three years um, to, you know, build a young team. Uh, also, whoever takes over the job is going to be delighted that they're not in Europe. I think they missed out on the, the conference league on the last day. And if a manager goes in there next season without having to spend you know, midweeks traveling all over, you know, every part of Europe with, with uh, you know, the Conference League isn't a great league, um, really. It's not a, a fantastic competition. So you don't have that distraction. So a manager can go in there, spend all week with these players, you know, nail down his ideas, get players playing the way he wants. And also with not being in Europe, you don't need as big a squad. So you can get rid of a few players, get in a few young guys that you like, um, have a smaller squad to work with and, First year should should be good for that manager. So so I've read in the last few days that there's lots of managers turning it down. I'm surprised by that because even as an Arsenal fan, I'm saying it's a good job to get. It's it's not the worst job that you're going to get at the moment. Um, look, probably not much expectations on them either. You know, following the last few years, that a manager can go in there and, and just get the crowd behind him straight away. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Sorry, I, you were just going to briefly touch on on Chelsea, <laughs> that crazy club. Even though. I mean, Pochettino hasn't been confirmed yet, I don't think. I think it was yesterday, yeah. It was yesterday, okay, because I did see something yesterday and I actually didn't double-check it, but yeah, I I, I was half wondering, was he holding out for a Real Madrid job, you know, if Ancelotti takes his cigars to Brazil? Um, But no, I mean, that's a big step forward for Chelsea, I I presume. Yeah, I mean, they've been such a mess. Um... Like I said, I think it was 600 million they spent over the last year, but no real plan of what to do with it. it, it to be honest, the spending, the spending seemed more like uh, it was done for show rather than any real purpose mm-hmm. or plan to it. It was just, oh, look what we can do. Um, you know, they seen that players were linked with other clubs and just decided, oh, we'll go for that player too. Um, and they created a situation where Graham Potter came in and he had an impossible task. Um, I don't think there's any way he could have succeeded at that club. They had over, I think it was something like 36 senior pros. Like that's, you know, normally a Premier League club will have 20 senior pros and a number of young kids that they're trying to bring in through it. And they had 37. And, you know, Potter couldn't even do proper training sessions. You know, they, they, apparently they needed two pitches for the training sessions. Um, when you have that many senior pros as well, you know, they're all expecting to be part of the match day squad. So you're leaving out half of your 36 players on a match day, which creates a lot of anger amongst players it creates clicks um you know it just puts a bad atmosphere around the club uh, and players stop trying uh in training i presume lads were probably not giving it everything because they knew they weren't going to be in the match day squad and you know i, I thought it was very harsh to get rid of potter i thought he had no chance whatsoever there with the situation that todd Bowley had put him in um it was also bizarre to get rid of him and have no plan about who to come in with with 10 games left you know why not give him the last 10 games, you know, if he, if he didn't have somebody to come in and, and take his place because he wasn't doing that badly, um, as yeah. it turned out, compared to, to Lampard. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I think he deserved, at least deserved a summer where he would get rid of a few of the players, 
um, get his own squad and well, just a bit of common sense around the club like that you can't work with 36 senior goals yeah. um, and you have to have a plan but I think Pochettino probably is the right man I think he won't take that bullshit from, from, from Bowley and, and yeah. uh, I think he get rid of players you don't want he'll make decisions quickly he'll work with a smaller squad um, at Spurs he seemed to get a good atmosphere in the dressing room as well um, the players all players seem to like him so he, he is a good man for the job but it's it's not a quick fix for them either because you have to get rid of so many players in the summer before they can even think about buying anyone else and clubs know that Chelsea have to sell so they're not going to be bidding big money for those players either they're going to force Chelsea to you know sell on the cheap um, so it's, it's interesting times for them but uh yeah, I, I can't. Yeah, I mean, it's a big challenge, isn't it? Because he likes, you know, the young players who haven't come in for big money. Now, the only lucky thing for Chelsea, I suppose, is that a lot of these big, big signings on eight year contracts are younger players who are very, very good. So, you know, Enzo Fernandez in midfield and players like that, you'd hope, you'd think, like, okay that's a Pochettino player that he can do, you know, really, really good work with. I, I follow a guy on Twitter, a, a data scientist who looks into like the probability of winning the league, the probability of getting the Champions League relegation, whatever. He He's done a good graphic today, I see. And um, the biggest swing of all the new managers was Frank Lampard in the wrong direction where, you know, it, it, as you say, it's bizarre how you'd get rid of Potter, even though things weren't going perfectly. Obviously, we know that. But to bring in Lampard, like, how could they prefer to go into the Champions League latter stages under Lampard versus under Potter, who they stuck with, you know, for a good while, actually? Surely it would have been better just sticking with, with, with him. But anyway, the biggest swing actually was Emery, uh, then Zebri. Um, and down the other end was Frank Lampard, Celis with, with Southampton, slightly unfairly, and Ryan Mason as well, which as well, slightly unfairly, like kind of at the end of the season. Um, I, I, without going into detail, I have to like, I have to mention the good job at Gary O'Neill with Bournemouth. I mean, do you remember that game where they lost? 7-0 against Liverpool or 8 9-0, 9-0, sorry. I knew it was a massive number. Um, and Scott Parker got sacked twice in the one season. <laughs> I think, was it Club Bruges? He went to Belgium? Yes, yeah, it was. I think, yeah, one of the Belgian clubs. Yeah, yeah I have to be careful because he could be, you know, I could be working on them under him any day. <laughs> um, you know, but at that moment, I thought, okay, Bournemouth are they're gone. Like, there's no chance they'll stay up. So, so really good job there. Um, Frink with Brentford. Like, when you talk about innovation and what makes the Premier League good, like, you don't expect Brentford to make Champions League or, you know, to, to beat the likes of Man City and everything. But these mid-table clubs and even lower-down clubs and the innovation they're bringing, I think that's what's making these games really interesting whereby where you can have Man United versus Brentford actually a good example can be an amazing game you know which in the past like I say a Wigan versus Man United it's 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 not a good game um the other ones were uh, Roy Hudson <laughs> did a good job <laughs> he came back with Crystal Palace and you know became an became a 
I, well, actually, probably back more to his roots of being a positive, more attack-minded coach, which he he kind of lost a little bit, I think, didn't he, with with Watford, with England a little bit, you know, even with Liverpool, didn't do as good a job, let's say. Um, and lastly, the Wolves manager, who I cannot pronounce his name. Let's call let's yeah, let's call him Julian. Let's call yeah. him. Let's go by first name. <laughs> 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 but I mean, I suppose if you think of it, the Wolves manager is, I know it didn't last long, but the ex-Spanish manager and Real Madrid manager, I don't know what neither of those positions worked out well for him for, you know, kind of more political reasons or whatever. Um, but you've got a high quality coach there doing a really good job uh, with the likes of Wolves. And and sorry, last one, um, Steve Cooper in with um, Not Forest as well, which... Again, at, at certain stages of the season, we kind of, I suppose we all thought that they were they were gone, but, you know, somehow managed to bring it back. Just, just briefly turning um, just to the relegation battle. Like, I was chatting to my brother today, who is also a QPR fan, and we are slightly worried about QPR's chances for the coming season in the championship when you have the likes of, like, Leicester with the seventh highest wage bill in the Premier League. Um, Southampton as well, really good club and Leeds, you know, down in the championship. And you think, okay, Leicester, how how the hell could Leicester have been relegated? You know, that kind of way. And it's a slight worry for the other teams in the championship. Yeah, the Leicester one is bizarre as well. Like it's, I, I felt it was like the sleepwalk into relegation. It was like they were good enough to get out of it, but just really try hard enough. Like it was just, it, it was nearly like they felt oh, it's not going to happen to us. We'll be all right. You know, the players were nearly arrogant about it. Um, you know, they have James Madison, Harvey Barnes, like as good attacking players as we get in the Premier League. You know, they're, they're chipping in with, you know, nearly 10, 10 goals a season from midfield positions or, or out wide. Um, they have Tielemans in midfield, like, those players should not be in a relegation battle and I, I honestly think they just felt they were too good they felt they would come right I think at one stage in the season they won four games in a row and thought right that's probably it and now I think that might have been early in the season they probably just thought right we've got out of it now and kind of rested on their laurels a bit but I think they took their eye off the ball a bit not just the players I think the whole club took their eye off the ball um their transfers over the last few seasons have been good, you know, starting back when they won the league, obviously they got Kante and Mares in, and you know, the last few years they got Madison from, from lower league and, and players like that. So they have been successful in transfers, whereas the last summer was just really poor. Um, they lost Casper Schmeichel, who is a huge influence of that club. Like he was a real leader, probably the main leader at the club, a huge voice there, and they got rid of him. Um and didn't replace them bizarrely. They, they they went with Danny Ward as their their number one keeper, who was the reserve. And he's just he's not good enough to be a first choice Premier League keeper. Um, the same with the centre halves. They lost Fafana to Chelsea, got big money, replaced him with Vout Fass, who, who again is not great quality. And they didn't bring in any other players. I don't think. I think maybe Harry Souter was one other signing. So like their signings were really poor. Lost two big players, didn't replace them properly. Um, I think at the beginning of the season they were had, like I said, they had Danny Ward in goal, and their central defenders were about Fast and Amarty, and that's just not good enough for Premier League. Like did their championship level defenders and keepers. Yeah. So you know their their transfers have been poor in the last year, which I don't know is there other stuff going on at the club? Are the owners 
yeah. not putting the money in anymore. They're looking for a way out. I, I, I don't know, but yeah, I still think they should have been good enough to get out of it. You know, with like I said, Tielemans, Madison, Barnes. You know, they had more than enough quality there. Um, yeah. so it's just really poor. And, and maybe as well as the case with Brendan Rodgers has been there for I think four or five years. Yeah. Did the players just need a new voice and it was too late then when they got it? Um, you know, he wasn't doing anything really to change around their fortunes. And then when they replaced him, Ian Smith wasn't really an inspiring choice, I felt, and they probably needed someone else. Um, and yeah, it's just and, and now the worry for them is that all these good players that they have, they're probably going to lose. Um, and a lot of them are near the end of contracts or out of contract. I think the other ones is a free transfer. Um, so they're not even going to get big money for these players that they're losing. Um, so it's it could be a nearly a complete rebuild for them again, um, without getting in the money that they they need to do that. Um, <laughs> Southampton's another one. Yeah, can I, I just just with Leicester? I mean, I suppose that's the one danger of when we talk about the long long term club development structures and everything like that is that in the Premier League with the type of money you're talking about and it being so competitive, like when when you mentioned about losing like let's call him a, a cultural architect like Casper Schmeichel and a few bad transfer windows or even one bad transfer window, like it can all go wrong very quickly. And the likes of Brighton, Southampton, Leicester, like Brighton are the opposite end of the scale. Obviously they're a good example, but to continually replace these good young players who are bought by bigger teams and also good managers like you know, Brendan Rogers is a fine manager. It just didn't work out at the end. They probably should have been quicker uh, to change him. But it's hard to keep doing that. And I think, like you say, like you're nearly one bad managerial appointment away from being in a relegation battle. I mean, I was surprised at the time when Dean Smith was announced having, like he was relegated with Norwich last season, Craig Shakespeare was brought back to the club again, you know, after being a few years away. Um, John Terry, John Terry was brought in as well. Was no, I'm thinking of Robbie Keane was brought in with Sam Allardyce, yeah, wasn't he? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but um, you know, just a few kind of funny appointments like that, a bad transfer window, and all of a sudden, like you're you're relegated. And as you say, seventh highest wage bill in the Premier League. They're going to have to ship off a lot of players, you know, in in the off season. But yeah, it, it's it's tricky. Sorry, you were going to mention about Southampton. Yeah, Southampton, another like I said, another relegated club that you know just seemed to get things wrong last year as well. You know, going back to what you were saying here, um, we we, we spoke earlier about how Brighton and their their transfer policy of getting in young players. What Brighton do is they get in those young players, they dip them in and out of the team with experienced pros. Whereas Southampton probably went over the top on the young players last year. They brought in players who had no real top flight experience. Some of them hadn't even played senior football before and they spent big money on from Man City. Um, and just all of a sudden when the season started, they had a really young team with very few experienced players, um, maybe bar uh, more pros. But, you know, it, it, it was a recipe for disaster for them. Um, I think they probably got rid of Hasselhoeffer a bit too soon. I don't, I don't, you know, they were struggling, but you know, given the profile, the age profile of their team, maybe he needed a bit longer with them. Mm. Again, Nathan Jones was a bizarre appointment for them. Um, well, I was, going, I was going to say, if, if they hadn't got rid of him, we wouldn't have got Nathan Jones, though. 
exactly. <laughs> for entertainment it, it purposes. It is funny that Nathan Jones' only win was against Frank Lampard. So <laughs> I think that says it all about those two. Um, I, 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 sorry, I heard, I was listening to Totally Football podcast today. Our, they're our rivals, by the way. You know, Jane, yeah. Jane Richardson and, and those lads, they're, they're actually our direct rivals. But um, uh, they were saying that he did a brilliant job with Luton twice, but they only seem to get promoted when he has left the club. <laughs> so they get to the championship when he leaves, he goes back, They get then he leaves again and they get promoted to the Premier League. But um, yeah, anyway. Yeah, and, and and when he left Luton, they continued on. Like it, it wasn't that you know that they, they struggled without him. Like both times when he left, like the last time they got promoted after he left as well, or are done well in the championship. Um but the thing with Saturn is next the start of next season is vital for them, you know, with those with that young squad. If they get off to a good start in the championship, those young players can go from strength to strength and you know, really improve. But if they struggle early on, you'd feel, you know, they could be, they could nearly be down relegation again with, with the eighth profile of the team they have. And um, that if you get off to a bad start, you know, the championship is not a great place for teams when you get on a bad run. Um, yeah. As yeah. Burnley showed this year, if you get on a good run with young players, you know, you, you can walk through the championship. I don't think the championship yeah. is as good a quality as it was a few years ago. I mean, Luton and Coventry in the playoff final was great to see, but I've seen those teams a couple of times this year and, and yeah. not very little of Luton. Every time I saw them, I, I thought they were just a long ball kind of physical team, but not much to them. Um, so yeah. the, the three relegated teams, like you say, have a bit about them, they will come back up or they will be there thereabouts next year. Um, yeah. Unfortunately for QPR, obviously, who... Uh, we might have to wait another year on promotion. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Uh, yeah, no, I do agree, actually. I, I don't think the championship is as difficult as people make out. I think if you get a good group like that, playing good football, um, working well, and as you say, get on a little bit of a run, like you can absolutely shoot up the table, you know, which you've seen, and it, it can happen the other way around as well. Um, <clears throat> I think it'll be amazing to watch. I'm really looking forward to seeing how Burnley do in, in the Premier League, I hope. I think they will stick to their kind of ethos and their philosophy. I hope it goes well um, for them, you know, because they've done things well and I hope it goes well for company as well. But you never know. It'll be interesting. Like, I'm looking forward in some ways to seeing how Luton do. Uh, you know, I'd, I'd love to get to a couple of games in their in their ground in the Premier League. I think that'd be a, a lot of fun. Um, but the last question I was just going to ask you, and you've been brilliant with your time and everything, is it, is it the, it's hard to make generalizations, but the death of bringing in these English managers with a few games to go to kind of stave off relegation, you know, big Sam, let's get him in, work hard, play tight, let's get over the line. Like Dean Smith, obviously relegated as well. Sean Dyche with, um, <clears throat> with Everton avoided relegation, but let's not say it was any like amazing success. The other problem as well is that I, I don't, I can't remember the details, but I'm pretty sure Dyche is probably in on a, like a two-year contract or maybe even a three-year contract. I think Allardyce is different actually. I think he was just brought in for yeah. four games, you know, so that's easy. But I suppose the point is, is that Dyche now is in place for Everton. Now I'm not going to comment on is that the best situation for our or for Everton going forward as regards building as a club. Maybe they do need to kind of batten down the hatches and get close together. And you know I'm not sure because uh, 
I, I tend to think the opposite. I tend to think of like, I like a team, no matter what level they're at, to play good football and you can pick up results. I, I just find it hard to see how you can pick up enough results in the Premier League nowadays by just, you know, being very tight defending and everything. I just don't feel it works. Um, but anyway, I'm interested to hear your thoughts. Yeah, with Everton, I, I feel the same. I think, I think probably Sean Dyche is probably at a crossroads of his career now. Like, he's had this reputation of someone who's, you know, like I said earlier, the two banks of four type manager who'd battle out a 1 0 win. And to be fair, Everton probably got three or four of those 1 0 wins in, in the last couple of months of the season to stay up. Yeah. But he needs to show he can do more than that now. Um, Everton is a big club. Like, it's, yeah. it's it should not be down in that position. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm I'm sure that fans want a bit better football as well. They don't want this, you know, defending on the edge of the box and trying to hold out for a 1-0. So, Deutsch needs to be able to show that he can do a bit more than what he done with Burnley, you know, that he can progress the club, he can play better football. Um, he is, he, like, he is labelled an old-school manager, which he is and which he sounds like, but he does embrace a lot of the modern things too, like, you know, about psychology and sports yeah. science and all that. So, yeah. you know, he is kind of a, a, a cross between the two. Um, but I think, like you, like you mentioned, I think Everton probably do need a more progressive manager, someone who plays a bit of football if they're if they're to get higher up the table. I think Deutsch will only get you so far. I think mid table is about as good as you expect. Whereas Everton need to be up, you know, Brighton are finishing seventh, Villa are finished seventh or eighth, you know, or sixth or seventh. So Everton need to be up in those positions, and if they are, they need to get someone a bit more progressive. Um, you look at the, like you mentioned about the, the Sam Allardyce, I felt Leeds gave up on staying up when they appointed Allardyce. It was four games to go. Did they really think he was going to save them at that stage? They they get a squad together that suits a certain style of football under Jesse Marsh and, and even Gracia. And then you get in a manager who plays a completely different style and you expect those players to learn that style within four matches and stay up. You know, players who have never played Allardyce's defensive style of football before in their lives, you know, it was that was a ridiculous decision at that stage to give them four yeah. games. Um, I, as I, regards the death of the the old style manager, yeah, I, I think I think when you look at the successful managers we've had this year, and like just being so many, like if you look at your candidates for manager of the year, there's probably ten plus managers in there. Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. going with the top four: Deserby, Frank, Marco Silva, Pullum. Gary, uh, Gary O'Neill, Steve Cooper have all been excellent. Um, they're all they're all what you would call, you know, I've heard it called before as career managers. That's their vocation. They mm-hmm. study the game, they study tactics, they immerse themselves in the game, they find out about psychology, they read up on stuff. It's you don't have the days anymore where a manager is just getting a job because they're a good player or mm-hmm. because their friends in the media keep overhyping them, you know, like Allardyce has had for years. Like mm-hmm. now you have to go with managers who you know have done the hard work. You know, want to learn more, want to get the knowledge of the game, the tactics side of things, and and not just this manager who's a big personality like Allardyce or or maybe worn up before from those types. Um, the Gerard Lampard, who are great players, but you know don't really know how to get the best out of the squad. I think those days are gone, and I think this yeah. year probably showed that these what you would call career managers are the way to go. Yeah. Yeah, they probably damaged the brand in some ways, like Lampard and Jared. If you think back a couple, you know, a few seasons ago when Lampard was made a good start at Chelsea playing young players and introducing Mason Mount and, and others there, 
um, James Reese and everyone, or Reese James and and uh, and Gerard was doing well with Drangers first and doing okay with with um, Villa. They've probably damaged that a little bit now. I, I heard an interesting stat about Leeds that since Bielsa left, they've won eleven games in total. You know, and and you kind of you kind of wonder where do Leeds go from here? You know, and and. I liked what Gary Lineker said about Leicester that over a 10-year period as a fan, he's a fan of Leicester, would you take winning the Premier League, being in Champions League, quarterfinal, winning the FA Cup, Community Shield, whatever, um, and getting relegated? Yeah, you'd probably take it. But Leeds like work so hard to get up to the Premier League and it just never really like actually they did well at the beginning during COVID, <laughs> unfortunately for them. And then since it just hasn't gone well. And yeah, it'll be interesting to kind of track their progress, I think, over the coming years. It's hard, it's hard to know how they'll do in the in the championship. Yeah, yeah and I feel they have some good players as well there. Um mm. but they'll probably lose those now. The likes of Tyler Adams, who unfortunately for them you know, got a bad injury on, in the running and missed a lot of that, you know, when they needed him most. I think he's a fantastic midfielder. Uh, Weston McKenney as well. Uh, another American, Aronson. Um, all those players will probably leave now. Um, they're not going to hang around and play in the championship. So spent they spent big money on, um, I think it's Rutter um, from Germany, from Hoffenheim, and didn't really play them there. It's going to cost big money in January and never really get them a chance. So that's bizarre signings as well. So that, They've had a few very strange deals. Um, no real plan there as well. You know, sacking managers, panicking when things are going wrong. Um, it's 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 hard to know. Like they they went on a spiral before and went down the leagues, and mm. wouldn't be surprised if it happened again. But at the same time, if they manage to keep those players, get a good managerial appointment in, you know, with the support to have Ellen Road is you know, especially in the championship, would be an absolute fortress if things are going well. Yeah. yeah. They really need to get off to a good start, get the fans behind them, and and they could be okay. Um, but yeah, just these clubs, they panic a lot of them panic when they get into a bad situation, make bad appointments, and and that's the thing that kept Forest up this year. You know, mm. they were struggling. Yeah. Steve yeah. Cooper could easily have been sacked, but Forest realised they're not going to get a better manager than him. Like he is very good. He's he's a calm presence. He didn't panic himself. You know, some managers when things are struggling, they try out different things that don't work. Cooper just kept doing what he did. Um, kept a cool head, kept calm, you know, got the players focused again and, and came back and stayed up. And, you know, clubs like Leeds, Southampton, Leicester probably needed to do a bit of that as well. Um, you know, just a, a calm presence. Um, but yeah. it's it's hard to know how these will go in the championship. Every year you expect the teams that get relegated should come back up again, but it rarely happens. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a good place to end where <clears throat> I think Steve Cooper kind of proved the situation whereby Forrest bought in what was it 25 new players or 20 maybe it's 21 slight exaggeration um but with a really good manager who could stitch things together like ultimately they came through and and massively overachieved for what you would have expected them to be relegated straight away so it's interesting to see that sometimes it's often down to an excellent manager head coach and then the backing from the club like what Arteta got over the last couple of years like what other clubs are doing as well. Okay, thank you very much, Derek. That was great. Really enjoyed it. We we thought we'd start with a a quick podcast episode and uh, we just kept talking because it was so interesting. (laughs) So (laughs) I think that's a good sign. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. No, it's been great, yeah.
Good, good. Uh, what we'll do is we, we'll try and get an episode in uh, before the Premier League starts as well. I think it'd be interesting just having a look at some of the transfers that come in and where clubs are kind of standing coming into the new season. So I think that will be um, an interesting chat as well. Okay, thanks, Derek. Thanks for coming on. And um, uh, audience, just remember, log on to dailysportscience.com and take a look at our services there. Thanks very much.